Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It makes you lose faith in the legal system in particular when you see people being, you know, having criminal records for life for possessing a small amount of cannabis or for having a, an addiction that they cannot manage. It's, yeah, it, it makes people just lose faith. Over the last few years, it's been pretty consistent that women are dying at a higher rate than men due to drug-related deaths. Why? And why are these figures still going up? This is Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by Acast in association with Elite UK. Let's get to the bottom of this. Here we go. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thank you so much for joining us. So we're going to be talking to Laurie Penny, who you may have heard on a previous episode. Go and check that one out. We talk about her book, The Bitch Doctrine. It's a fantastic episode. Completely unedited, we put that one out because it was just so fun. But we're talking about a different subject matter today, which isn't quite so fun. Um, Yeah, women are dying at a higher rate than men, but they use less drugs. So we've got a lot to discuss and work out why this is going on. So we've got Neve Eastwood, who is a friend of mine. She's the executive director of Release, a drugs charity, which I really urge you to check out. Please, they do such amazing work. And we're also joined by Anya Pop, who is a Channel 4 news correspondent. She's covered this issue as well. She's put out films about it. As you know, if you listen to this on the Acast app, acast.com slash stop and search, there'll be scrolling links underneath with all relevant information. There'll be links to Anya Pop's videos. We're also going to be linking to Release's work and, of course, uh, Laurie Penny's work as well. Let's just get straight into this. Why? What's going on? Why are women dying at a higher rate than men? What are we not understanding about this issue? Here we go. There's been some horrific statistics come out lately. There's been a 95% rise in female drug deaths. But women are using less drugs. So why is there this disparity? And there's been a 216% increase in Scotland in drug deaths. So what's going on? All right, so this is going to be what the panel was about. So joining us, we have Laurie Penny. Hi, uh, I'm Laurie. I'm a writer and a journalist, and I'm mostly here to learn from the rest of you guys. And also we've got Anya Pop. 
Hi, so I'm a, um, a journalist at Channel 4 News um, and I've made a few pieces recently about drugs and women and drug use. Um, so that's why I'm here, I believe. <laughs> and Neve Eastwood. Um, hi, I'm Neve Eastwood. I'm executive director of Release, which is the UK's centre of drugs and drug laws. Um, so very happy to talk about drug policy. And I apologise to Neve in advance because not only she share my sweaty microphone, but she's also got the seat that's like a rodeo. It's just so rickety. I'm surprised I managed to stay on that through that. So I think we're going to start with you, Neve, on that note for, for many reasons. Why, what's going on? Why have we got a high rate of drug deaths in women now? That's a huge question. And actually, I think one that's really unexplored. And I think this is an issue that drug policy... Uh, in, including my own organisation, has really failed on. Um, so I, I think it's interesting to know, I was at a conference in Budapest in September with about 30 or 40 other women who work in this area who are super, super bright. I exclude myself from that definition. Um, but we were talking about drug policy and how it impacts specifically on women. And we had just been very conscious how so much of our work and people worked in development issues. They worked on uh, drug, uh, sorry, harm reduction, on different legal frameworks to deal with drugs. But the real absence of research around the specific... Um, the specific kind of experience of women who use drugs, and, and in particular, the specific issues around women who use drugs problematically. So, you, you know, I, I think earlier you were talking about language and the importance of language to say that, you know, some people do have problems with drugs, but those are generally driven by their own experiences. It's not because of the drugs, it's because often they will have suffered trauma. Um, so physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, or, or, or other um, pretty awful childhood experiences and adult experiences. Um, and when women go out to seek treatment in this country and many other countries across the globe, um, and especially women who have children, they are defined as mothers first and people second. So actually accessing treatment, for example, is very difficult because often social services will be brought in um, basically because you say, I have a child. And so there is an assessment. It's, it's assumed that your child is at risk regardless of assessing whether there is risk or not. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that if you want. So I think we have this barrier to accessing treatment that we're not properly looking at. I th also think that the services, harm reduction services, which are completely diminished in this country, we have moved to a recovery agenda which focuses abstinence as the outcome uh, the main outcome of treatment rather than saving people's lives and protecting people's lives and making sure that their lives are better. Um, so we have this barrier to treatment, but also services that are very male-focused um, and very focused on, I have to say, white straight males. So, you I mean, there is not the diversity in services that there needs to be. Um, and I think this is one of the problems that we have. In relation to the drug-related deaths, I don't want to take up too much time, um, but in relation to the drug-related deaths, you know, I think a lot, like there's, the recent reports have been really interesting to see where we've really focused on the fact that women are dying at a huge rate compared to historically, but also to the fact that up until that point, the conversation was very much about older white men dying. It was the train spotting generation. So you saw pictures of you know Ewan McGregor and other famous actors meant to, you know, who were meant to depict 
these tragic, tragic deaths. Um, and actually, when you, you dig behind the statistics, you know, obviously it's a third of the deaths are, are, are women. But also, too, when we look at the, the drivers for those deaths, most of them, like with men, are accidental. But if we look at intentional poisoning around illicit, where illicit drugs are part of the death, the rates for intentional poisoning are double that of men. So it's almost double. So it's 22% of uh, female drug-related deaths are intentional compared to 11% of men. And nobody's really questioning what's going on here. And I think it's tied up with like austerity and everything else. So suicide. I mean intentional, so suicide. And I think there's a bigger conversation that we should be having around austerity and mm -hmm. you know, poverty and all of those things and what's driving it. Well, obviously there is a huge taboo in terms of talking about suicide and about people who take their own lives, uh, not just around austerity. And it's partly because within journalism itself, there is a, uh, there is a very defined set of you know, internal self self-prescribed laws and rules around what you can and can't say in terms of reporting suicide and reporting self-harm. But um, I, I actually just wanted to ask you to clarify on uh, people who are seen as mothers first when they're drug users. Are you saying that people who use drugs and are mothers are uh, less likely to seek help because they're worried that their kids will be taken away? And, and if so... Is that the same for men with kids who are users of drugs? Okay, so I think, again, this is a really interesting point, and this is based on the experience. So at my organization, we deliver legal services directly in harm reduction and drug treatment centers with people who have a history of problematic crack cocaine and heroin use. And I think, yes, women are in particular defined as mothers first, mm -hmm. Um, so men are not treated in the same way when they present for treatment in most cases. They're not treated as fathers first. Not treated before, as fathers yeah. first. So women are defined by their motherhood. Men are defined by their personhood, by being men mm -hmm. presenting for treatment. But also to race and class play into this. So that's a really important thing. So the majority of people who are accessing treatment are people who are from areas of deprivation because we know poverty exacerbates problematic drug use. If you are rich in your middle class or middle class and wealthy, you have resources that mean that you don't have to access community drug treatment in the same way. And then race. So for example, we had a client, and I'll remember, I remember it very well, who was in her late 20s. She had two children who were of school age. The children were going to school. Um, she, uh, they were doing well, good grades, uh, regular attendance, uh, good friendship groups. She used crack cocaine. She smoked a pipe at night after 10 o'clock once the kids were in bed. She felt she felt that was her choice, that, that that wasn't good for her, you know, and, and that's tied up with how we report and crack and everything else. She went to services. Her children were immediately put on the at-risk register, oh. immediately put on the at-risk register, which is wrong because at-risk should be an assessment of harm legally. That's why you put people on the at, children on the at-risk register. So I think it's, it's tied up with being a female with class and with race. So thank you. I think there's a really good point for to bring Anya in on this because your film picks up on those points of what goes on in the dynamic of parents. Um, if you listen to this podcast, go to a cast.com slash stop and search and Anya's film will be up there scrolling. Um, can you just tell us about your, what, what your film is about? Um, yeah, so we were given some figures um, 
So uh, the University of York had analysed um, the rate of drug deaths in women in the last 10 years. And as you say, it's gone up by 95%, opposed to, I think, 48% in men. So it's still going up for both, but more for women. Um, and it was quite a, a difficult one for us because you kind of really want a sort of black and white answer as to what that is. But as Neve touched on, it's really hard to kind of work out what that is. And the people that we spoke to said it's a mix between um, women not wanting to, to expose the fact that they've uh, got a problem with drugs because of the risk of having their children taken off them. Um, we spoke with um, a lady who had been addicted to heroin for years, for I think 20 years, and then um, and then she'd been clean for a year after her partner died. And um, she said that often in, in cases of partners where they're both doing drugs, um, they feel that only one of them can ask for help and, and the other one has to kind of stay in the shadows, as she put it. Um, so her partner sought help and she had to kind of carry on with her addiction and didn't want to expose that they both had a problem with drugs. Um, and also, touching on what you were saying about austerity, um, a lot of the people that we spoke to um, were saying that, obviously, in times of austerity, they try and simplify um, drug treatment centres. And so, as a result of this, it's kind of, you know, men on the large, on the whole, are the ones that um, use drugs more and, and have more issues with drugs. And therefore, obviously, it's catered towards men. And that means women uh, who are drug addicts, who have often... Um, survivors of rape or domestic abuse kind of you know they go into these centers which are full of men often who know their partners or know the people who have perpetrated the crime against them and feel they can't get the help they need there because they're being judged or um you know things will get back to their partner so it, it's just it's not a very clear picture from what we could work out and uh quite quite depressing in many ways that we've got to this point and that's a, quite a theme in your book, isn't it, Laurie, of, as you just said there, women are often seen as mothers first before yeah. a bit becoming a person. And this is a completely broad issue of that, isn't it? That it's, it's there. It, we're treating drug consumers as mothers and not people in their own right. Absolutely. And it, it's very similar to the way in which issues that specifically affect women's health have been minimised throughout you know, the, the history of medicine. Even now, um, when it comes to the way that, uh, that medicinal drugs and, and, and medicines are administered, people, are, people sometimes you know, make mistakes because a lot of the, the idea is that these things are standardized to a standard body, which is assumed to be male. There is still very little research on specific health issues that affect that either affect women more than men, apart from things like breast cancer, or, or the ways that common medical problems that affect everyone affect women differently. Um, and a, a lot of women's specific problems, problems for people with, with uteruses and female reproductive systems, uh, have been ignored for you know, many, many years. Only recently has the treatment of endometriosis, just for an example, been taken seriously. Endometriosis is a disease which is reasonably common where you have uh, the same cells that make up the walls of the uterus migrate around the body so that when you have your menstrual cycle, there is bleeding from those cells in disparate parts of the body. And it's incredibly debilitating, but 
it's also very hard to diagnose because doctors don't know what they're looking for because they're not taught to look for it. So a lot of women who will present with your terrible crippling pain for years sometimes are told that they're making it all up. And it's, I, I feel that when we're talking about women's health, there are a lot of similarities here in what both of you are saying about the research you've done around drug policy. Especially as well, the, the differences between physical pain and emotional pain mm -hmm. being the same thing as well. And that's something your film touches on, isn't it, Anya, that you use a case study of, of Veronica, that her parents were consuming uh, heroin, um, especially even at her own wedding, um, presumably to treat emotional pain that's going on in their lives. Do you think that we're any closer to understanding that and grasping that and treating that on its own merits? The emotional pain? No, I think, I think, oh, I think we're going forward in understanding drug addiction. But I think also what you're saying about Veronica, it's, I mean, there's so many different levels to addiction, isn't there? You know, there's often um, addiction goes in generations. So um, families kind of who bring their children up in an environment where there's lots of drug taking, the children kind of go on to drug take. Veronica wasn't one of those. Veronica um, grew up uh, with parents who sold drugs and um, consumed heroin in the house. But, I mean, she's amazing. She's got, um, she's kind of, she moved away and her, her mum died um, at the age of 56, I think, um, of drug addiction. Uh, sorry, no, she died of hepatitis C. Well, she died of liver cancer as a result of hepatitis C. Um, and that's something in the stats as well, that, that women, older women are dying as a result of their drug addiction, um, which is interesting. But yeah, in terms of the emotional, um, well, I just think in, in times of austerity, they, they kind of treat the sort of the, the main issue and don't look around the kind of corner. And I guess if, if those things were treated first, then perhaps people wouldn't get addicted to drugs. That must be something that you see and release all the time because you're, you're on the front line. People come to you when they're in turmoil. Um, so it must be really difficult in your line of work to, to see this emotional trauma that's out there. Yes, it is. I mean, it's incredibly hard to see. I mean, I have to say, I, I no longer deliver the legal services. It's my amazing legal team here every day dealing with that. But I think what's really important to remember that the clients that we see, it's not about the drugs. And yet, the policy, both treatment and criminal justice, obsess about the drugs. So rather than saying, well, why is this person using heroin? And think about what heroin is. Heroin is diamorphine. It's illegal street diamorphine. That's it. We use diamorphine in hospitals every day to treat pain, every single day to treat physical pain. It is perfectly rational that someone who is emotionally in pain seeks out a substance to relieve that pain. That is a rational choice. Yet we treat people who use these substances as completely irrational. We then define them by their drug use and say that the treatment has to focus on getting them free of that drug rather than looking at, well, what's going on around? What's the cause of this? Let's look at the social issues that are going on, often extreme poverty, which I say is exacerbated, exacerbates their, their experiences. So there are middle class and upper class people who use heroin. It is not just within people who live um, on benefits, for example, or who are very low incomes. This is, this is common amongst society. The difference is these people are visible to us because of deprivation. Yeah, so we need to start addressing 
those issues, you know, job opportunities. In Portugal in 2001, they decriminalized drug possession. So they ended criminal sanctions for drug, um, drug use and drug consumption. In this country, we still de decide to criminalize people who have suffered in the way that I'm describing and those who choose to, to use recreationally. But what they also did in Portugal, they recognized the need for a really holistic approach. So they set up employment programs. They went to employers and said, you know what, you hire the guys who are in our clinic, we'll pay half their wage. They give microloans to people to set up companies, recognizing that deprivation is the exacerbator here. And that if we really want to treat the problem, one, we look at the cause of it, not the drug. Um, and what we do is we make sure that that person has some, that has better social and economic capital than they, they currently have. Also to, when I say treat the problem, treating the problem means respecting what the individual wants, not what you as the treatment service dictates to them. So at the moment, we have a very punitive treatment service where our clients are infant, infant I can't say it now, infantilized, treated as children, um, who can't make their own decisions, who have to jump through hoops in order to get their medication. And that is no treatment environment. A proper treatment environment is where the clinical needs of the patient are addressed. So treatment here is defined as being drug-free rather than saying what proper treatment is, is the quality of your life. Is saying, okay, if you need to be on a methadone script for 20 years, that's fine. You know, if someone has diabetes and they go off and binge on chocolate, we wouldn't think for a moment of taking away their insulin. That would be cruel, but we do that in treatment services in the UK every single day. What, what was the, um, the line that the Home Office, I mean, both Neve and Annual know this, but the, this, the, the response of the Home Office when the figures were unearthed of 95% increase in drug tests what was it i'm not sure they recognized them actually i'm not sure that we <laughs> i'm not sure they ever commented on them um i think neve you probably know wouldn't you it's, it's i don't know if they commented on your report which was brilliant by the way i have to say um i'm not sure they comment on that but generally speaking the the line from the home office is drug drug policy is working in this country, drug use is falling. They define a successful drug use policy by prevalence rather than harms. So for me, I don't care if a million more people are smoking cannabis a year, if it is causing no harm, really. I do care if one more person dies as a result of shitty drug policies and shitty drug laws. So you know I mean? that's what matters. And actually, drug use has gone up very slightly in the years since, the, since 2010, when the Conservative coalition started. So in the last 10 yeah. years, when drug deaths in women have gone up exponentially, that's obviously 10 years, but then in the seven years um, since we had a change of government, I mean, it, it's... It hasn't been great for ages, but it's, it's gone up. No, you're absolutely right. So those, those, that statement they make about drug use falling is actually around cannabis use specifically. Yeah. And it's between 2002 and 2010 when we had reclassification of cannabis and brought the penalties down. So it's got nothing to do with this government, even though they lay claim to it. In, in Laurie's book, uh, again, I'll quick, keep quoting it, but it's, it's fantastic. That, and I actually seen this new statesman article that you put out of... People have to believe in the government, just, just as the same as it's a, almost a parental relationship. Mm -hmm. 
where we have to have faith in our parents, the goals they set for us, the, the morals they set for us, and the, the punishments that they give us. We've got that same relationship with the government. We are, we're, we're essentially in servitude to them. In, you know, well, it's a bad choice of word, but do you think that drug laws are the absolute example of how the government get it wrong and how that loses respect from yeah. citizen state? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the way that drug use is criminalised and, and punished in, in this country as well as in the United States is just a classic example of everybody knows that this is, this is crazy. Everybody knows that it's not working, um, including people who don't use drugs themselves. It's, it's common knowledge that drug policy is, is really, really is wrong and needs to be rethought. But to watch successive governments sticking to their guns and actually cracking down harder, it's like watching your parents mess up. It's like being punished as a child for something you didn't do. It makes you lose respect for that authority figure. It's really, um, I think it's damaging to, to the fabric of our democracy. You know, it makes you lose faith in the legal system in particular when you see people being, you know, having criminal records for life for possessing a small amount of cannabis or for having a, an addiction that they cannot manage it's yeah it it makes people just lose faith not that i'm you know i'm an anarchist i'm not necessarily wedded to the idea of that you know everyone should have faith in the state but i i do believe that faith in any state has to be earned and this government like the one before it like the coalition is um is acting like it deserves our faith and our trust without having done anything to earn it. And I think a good example of that, going back to you, Anya, is your film on drug testing, which is previous to the one uh, that's just been released on, on drug deaths, of how society itself has started to almost police itself. It's almost it's got it's broken away from what the state sets out as morals and the loop, who drug tests, who Henry's normally here, um, Henry Fisher from Vault Fast and the Loop. Um, it's, it's an issue that's really interesting, isn't it, that drug testing has been quite organic. People have taken it upon themselves to get out there and do that. You interviewed a lot of people in festival scenes. <laughs> what was the general reaction like? Were people for, against? I mean, I think uh, we couldn't find anyone that was against it. Not at all? No. Yeah, so, so the piece was about um, drug testing at festivals. So it's, I guess it's a microcosm of what could happen. Uh, so what are they testing for? So they're testing for... Um, the danger, the strength, and basically that it is what you think it is. Um, so the idea is you can go up, you can give them, they can't give you back, which one woman who didn't realise this and gave them all of her drugs was very disgruntled to find out. Uh, but we couldn't film that, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, so they, you give a, a, a bit of whatever you want testing um, and then go back in an hour and then you have a sort of consultation with them and they tell you about what you've got, how strong it is, if it is what you think it is, and give you advice on it. You know, they can advise you not to take it, but generally they'll... Uh, that's only if it's really dangerous. Generally, they'll just say, you should do X amount of it, and, you know... It, I mean, it's drug safety, basically. Um, and they found... They found loads of stuff. So they found um, ecstasy pills, which were concrete. They found um, ketamine that was... Um, anti-malarial tablets, they found, I mean, they found all sorts of stuff. I mean, not stuff that you'd take willingly. Um, but, I mean, it's interesting because it, this was for recreational drug users rather than uh, people that have got an issue with drugs. 
Um, I don't know if that's the correct terminology. Problem with drugs. Um, and, yeah, so, obviously, as Channel 4 News, um, national broadcaster, regulated by Ofcom, we couldn't put people on drugs on the TV, <laughs> which made for quite interesting box pops. So, we spoke to a few people who I, you know, suspected were probably on drugs. And they're like, no, no, it's fine. And they were admitting they were doing drugs. And I was like, well... You know, do your parents need it? Yeah, my parents know I do drugs. Do your work need it? Yeah, my work knows I do drugs. I'm like, right, okay. <laughs> so we'd interview them, and I'd, I'd give them my card and say, look, if you change your mind, let me know. They all let me know. <laughs> Within about an hour, like, oh, yeah, I'm not sure that's a great idea. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, about what we said. <laughs> um, so we spoke to four people, and they all, I think, probably had maybe... Actually, I shouldn't say this. Anyway, so they were... I, I said to them all, look, if you want to make it clear that you don't do drugs, you need to say, we don't do drugs. So all of them looked very suspicious, because they're like, well, I don't do drugs, but my friends... <laughs> um, but, yeah, we couldn't find anyone. Like, obviously, you want to reflect kind of the different arguments, but, you know, at a festival, generally, people are quite sort of open to the idea that some people will take drugs, even if they don't do it themselves. Um, I'm just thinking of that brassé episode now. <laughs> <laughs> in my head. I don't think I've seen that. The cake, oh, cake episode. Oh yeah, yes. the, yeah, it's wonderful. In a, but the bit where they um, they can't find they there is some statistic that's made up as like 25% of 15 year olds are on hard drugs. Um, we couldn't find any 15 year olds, so instead of asking three 15 year olds, we're asking nine five year olds. Are you on drugs? <laughs> Do you use the horse? You know? Do you shoot up? It's like, no, 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 no. That's a really good point because that's something I really want to touch on is how the media does deal with drugs because there's a great article that came out in Vice and as much as I probably shouldn't say her name, um, Katie Hopkins, it, it, it says about um, the dangers of um, journalism that... Yeah, the dangers yeah. of Katie Hopkins. Say no to Katie Just Hopkins. Just say no. Because yeah. <laughs> that, that, she should be classified, I, I think. Um, Use responsibly. <laughs> But it's, it, it's the dangers of balance um, of how things are reported. Mm. So, and, and you draw examples in the book again, Laurie, of you, you had a debate on Channel 4 News, believe yeah. it or not. And the way that things are constructed is, is you know, jousting, it's adversarial. As opposed to having a conversation, you have to pick a side and then fight that. And if you've, if you've got too much balance over one way, prime example, drug policy, the evidence is in our favour. We've won the debate. Yeah, absolutely. But the idea of balance, balance, is that you get two people who disagree about everything and you make them shout at each other for five minutes and that's balance. Well, it's like... It's really hard for broadcasters, I do understand, because they have to... Well... They have to not be Fox News. There is the duty to actually provide some sort of objectivity. And you have to do that whilst also making interesting television in some sort of way. So occasionally wanting people to have a fight, that does sometimes produce... It doesn't produce a workable conversation, but sometimes it does cover your bases and give you five minutes of interesting TV. But in terms of debating the issues, it's not necessarily always helpful it's it's sometimes much more interesting to have people who disagree slightly to talk about the bits that they might agree on or not i don't know you probably have a lot to say about this yeah i feel like we've angled in on the onion now i really apologize <laughs> gotta run um yeah i mean i guess with a debate what we're trying to do is show the different arguments mm. 
And sometimes we have to do... I mean, sometimes people are really opposed to each other. We, we will try not to construct an argument, but at the same time, you don't want people that are nuanced, because then you're not really doing justice to the debate. Um, and some debates as well like make us feel a little bit, um, I don't know, uncomfortable, maybe. Um, but they are debates that are happening in wider society, and so you have to have them. Um, even if you think that maybe the debate hasn't got base, if that is a debate that's happening, then as a public broadcaster, we have a responsibility to reflect that. But I do agree, like, sometimes those kind of shouty... I mean, we've had guests before where we've had to put them in different rooms before, and that's... Really? Like, yeah, I mean, often um, environmental kind of... Debates, but I mean, I don't know. I, nobody likes anyone that's shouting, but at the same time, if they agree with each other, it's kind of a bit boring. From, from our side, Neve, being in drug policy reform, there's the usual characters that get wheeled out, isn't there? And it turns into a shouting match, and that's why on this podcast we don't construct it in in a adversarial way. It, it, we find that the audience prefer it having a conversation. I think that's why podcasts work. People like being a voyeur on a conversation, but. We do, we get them in job policy, don't we, where it's just shouting matches and it's the same figures every time. Whereas the reform side, so many big characters you can have on there yourself, someone from Leap, someone from Transform, Nigel over here who we're going to speak to. Totally, we're going to get to you. Um, but on the other side, you get the shouty matches. I use Katie Hopkins as an example. She has spoken on job policy before. Um, but how do, we, how do we get around that? How do we actually get this down to a conversational point again? Um... Well, to be very frank, I was getting very frustrated going on shows and having these adversarial conversations. And I think it's also a responsibility of how you handle it. So I think if you end up shouting, you're doing a disservice to the audience. And I'm not perfect at it. I've ended up shouting, so I know this. Um, but equally, too, and this is going completely off topic, but you know, last week with Trump going after the press again and saying, when will balance be brought back? You know, when is there going to be balance? And it was actually Reagan who got rid of the duty of the press to have an objective um, of debate. So whilst we may not like it, if, as long as we have those, we don't end up with Fox News here to the same degree. So I think, you know, I think it's more nuanced than kind of like we shouldn't shout each other. I would like a more constructive, thoughtful debate. I would like Peter Hitchens to be banned from everything, um, as well as Katie Hopkins. But I don't believe in prohibition, so, you know. Um, so I think it's really hard for the media. I do think it's hard. But I also think our side comes on with evidence, you know, so we constantly, we have our emotional arguments, but we also back it up every single time with evidence. And that's all you can try to do. Um, my favorite line, though, is, you know, that the fact that we are a well-funded, you know, billion-dollar campaign behind all our organizations. You can all look at our accounts. We're not. But also, too, what do you think prohibition is? My God, that's the most well-funded campaign. A hundred years of governments across the world feeding money into it. And you're talking about us getting you know, a grant from George Soros or someone like that. It's ridiculous. There is no parody in this. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting on my check from George Soros. Oh, damn. Yeah. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, it's in the mail. It's... It must be difficult from a media point of view, Anya, to, to put out a balance piece because... As you said, unless you go for the same characters on, on drug policy specifically that are always out there and always shouting, 
there's not a lot else you can do other than just covering the stories. And I think that's why your your pieces have been so great, and not just saying because you're in front of me, but your pieces have been balanced and nuanced and haven't had to bring in that adversarial point of view. You've just covered a story, haven't you? Yeah, although I have to admit, after one of the pieces, we did have a debate with Peter Hitchens. <laughs> sorry. I, I had nothing to do with it, though. <laughs> sorry for you. I had nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, I mean... As I was mentioned earlier, we have got a duty to do the balance. And there are people out there that think it is wrong that we'd even consider sort of, you know, legalising marijuana or uh, testing drugs at festivals or any of these things. There is an argument, and we have to represent that argument. Um, but at the same time, we aren't interested in having a shouting match as much as you might think. We're interested in having an actual debate where people are, like, sort of desperate to get their word out because there is so much to say and they feel so passionately about it, not so much about the shouting. But, I mean, we talk about austerity, but, you know, the news media is going through a huge time of change and budgets are being cut and we've got less and less staff and unless, you know, we have, you know, there's less people sort of guest booking, for example, or, and sometimes it's just a lack of time and a lack of uh, knowledge of who the best people are and we're constantly finding new people to come on the programme. But, you know, you don't want to bring out the same people for the, for the same debate. And, you know, I know we've used Peter Hitchens a couple of times, but... But I think it's a real problem for you. There literally is three people who argue the other side. Yeah. You know, so you're st it's, you have a limited pool. And a lot of them want paying as well. A lot, a lot of, a lot of um, the kind of uh, prohibition people. And really? we don't have a budget. Oh my god! Well funded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll, 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 we'll oh, sorry, I shouldn't. Not so much. Not just with drugs. Um, a lot of people that are having that adverse point of view. Professional know, contrarians. Well, not so much professional contrarians, but they know that there's not many people that be willing to put themselves on the line um, to say those things because they know there'll be loads of hit back on Twitter and stuff. And so, you know, and, and we just haven't got the funds for that either. So. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Isn't that interesting, though, that the people that are objecting against drug law reform are the ones getting the aggro now? Because it, 
you would think it'd be the people trying to reform the drug laws because you know we're, we're creating hedonism we want to we create this stupid universe where people are just losing their squash on drugs all the time but but it's not is it we're, we're actually almost going back to the rebel alliance we're the rebel alliance we seem to be the goodies in this mm, yeah it's also um the new right wing and people who do a lot of online harassment they seem to be pretty into drugs like, they seem to be pretty against prohibition for various reasons I'm not sure I would want to speculate about. Huh? Yeah, they're li yeah, a lot of them are libertarians. Yeah, and libertarians tend to be pretty keen on, on, uh, on legalizing drugs across the board. Not so much legalizing abortion. They stop there for some reason. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, but they're all right they're on, on that. A stop clock tells the right time twice a day. Do you think we can ever have that conversation of sovereignty over your own body, no matter what the subject matter is? Do you think that we're getting to grips with the fact that a person is a person and they can have agency? Oh, God, not yet. No, I think it's getting worse. Yeah. yeah. Um, on, on lots and lots of different levels, the idea that a human being has a right to control what happens to their body is, uh, is becoming more controversial, particularly if that human human being is not a white, straight, male human being. It's um, often, particularly in libertarian circles, that the, it, that conversation stops at somebody's right to not pay taxes, own a gun, and smoke weed. Um, but actually there are lots more different, there are a lot of different kinds of agency and bodily autonomy that are not discussed at, at all in, in those terms. Abortion being one of them, um, you know, different kinds of drug use being another. Um, it's not talked about in terms of agency and consent. It, it must be difficult to present these cases in terms that are specifically talking about our region and your Middle England friendly, in, because these are difficult subject matters to address. How, how do you go about researching something like drug policy to put it out on daytime TV, evening TV? Um, well, I should add, I am from Middle England. <laughs> I'm from the Midlands. Um, but yeah, there are lots of people who um, don't see it from a kind of, I guess, a London-centric point of view that's quite sort of liberal. And um, But in terms of how we research, I guess with all, you know, we're, Channel 4 News especially is really interested in drug policy and, and drug laws and drug reform and all of that. Um, but it's how we tell the story in a different way because we can't keep telling the same stories. It's not interesting. So um, it's, it's quite hard sometimes to keep these issues that we really think are important on the agenda, you know, domestic abuse and um, kind of, I guess, the stories which are harder to tell in a way. Um, and, and so, yeah, so it's, it's basically always trying to find a new angle or a new stat or... Um, and keeping in touch with people who are in that industry and or are in that field and can sort of share updates and changes that are happening. Do you, th do you think we're getting better, Neve, at the way that drug policy is presented? Do you think that we are reaching out there into the other realms that we've not necessarily touched before? Another good question. I've, you were talking about social media earlier, and I do worry sometimes that we do work in an echo chamber in social media and drug policy, and that we put a lot of effort into this, and we're just repeating the same kind of line to the people who already support us. So I, I would question like the, 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 the value of really focusing that unless you're getting out there and beyond that, that 
um, echo chamber. Um, I think <clears throat> I think what we're doing well is, if you look at 10 years ago, 15 years ago, this was not a legitimate debate in many ways. People going on TV and talking about legalization or decriminalization were seen as kind of people who just wanted to use drugs for their own purposes. And there was a real disregard for the, the, the social... Um, injustices caused by the drug laws. I think that's changed dramatically in the last seven years. I think one of the major contributions to that is the Global Commission on Drug Policy, where you have all these very high-profiled ex-presidents. They are ex, and that is a problem, and that's mm-hmm. a whole other debate, but they are ex-presidents. Um, but also, you know, uh, high-profile people like Kofi Annan and Richard Branson uh, coming out and saying, this is an issue, and we should be working on this issue. And I think as we've seen an increase in in the kind of social damage caused by drug policies. So, so Laurie earlier mentioned about how the laws, um, how, how, how people don't respect the law. I think that's really reinforced by the fact that we have, you know, the previous prime minister, the previous chancellor, the current home, or the current foreign secretary have all admitted to drug use and had they been caught would not be in the positions mm. that they are today. That would have been a blessing, especially in relation to <laughs> Boris, but, you know, hey. Um, but the, the, it, it's, it's the fact that the, the law is specifically applied against certain groups. It's about the fact that people are now starting to see that this is a tool of social control, that yep. this is a way of repressing groups in society who are not seen as part of mainstream society, whether that be people of colour, and I should say children of colour, because that's who... Mm-hmm we focus our drug laws against. We talk about, you, politicians talk about drug laws being used to protect children, that we have to send the right messages. But if we look at who's being criminalised, these are young black men and young white boys living in deprived areas. Um, so there's an issue of social control, first of all. But more than that, I think that people are a little bit fed up with the hypocrisy of politicians, not just because they've previously used it, but if we look at, for example, the Home Office, their own reports, and there's several of them, but I'll take the most recent one, which was an evaluation of the 2010 drug strategy, so the 2017 drug strategy came out this year. Mm. Alongside it, which none of us in drug policy reform saw for about two weeks, and then we all went, oh my bloody God. Um, is an evaluation of the previous strategy. Chapter 5 of that deals with law enforcement. And what it says is, we spend, this is the Home Office, we spend $1.6 billion a year on law enforcement. And it has no to little impact on the supply side. And any impact that it has is short-lived. But what it does have are all of these unintended consequences, these negative consequences. So what's even worse is they know it's not working. They literally know they're pissing 1.6 billion down the drain every year. And they continue to do it. And I think that hypocrisy, both as users of drugs and as purveyors of prohibition, is starting to get a, a, a spotlight on it. And I think people are waking it up. I'm not sure it's getting outside of our echo chambers hard enough and fast enough, but who knows? I'm going to um, come over to Emily over here, if that's all right, because Emily writes for Vice, uh, Independent, and along with other things. So you're really embedded in the media, aren't you, Emily? And you wrote a piece on the drug death rise, um, and you used the case study, didn't you, of 
and I think this is something that we've touched upon in, in many of our podcasts, and, and I think Neve would definitely agree with this, is it's the human interest that's starting to get people's attention. We can talk about statistics all we want, but unless it's got a face to it, we're just not attaching ourselves there. So can you just give us a bit of a background on what Anne's story was? Um, well, much like you said earlier, the link between abuse is like central to this story. So she was only 13 years old when she was raped. And so she didn't turn to drugs immediately, but when she went to do statements, she was saying that she would be in the police station doing a statement, and then there was never any ask, do you need any support? And so eventually she decided to run away from home, and which was a nice home, a nice family who supported her. But she had this huge shame attached to this rape, which was not her fault at all, but for some reason women do have this because of how they're treated. I mean, look at how the questions they're asked in court when they go for rape trials. And so she had this huge um, shame attached to it and ran away from home and was taken in by, I think is some kind of grooming gang, which obviously has been talked about quite a lot recently. And they, she eventually started using drugs and to support that habit with no... You know, financial income, you know, when you're 14 years old, you don't have any access to benefits, you don't have a house, there's no, there's no support. So to support herself, she started selling drugs, and things just spiralled from there. And the story is quite scary because there's one particular element where she was in a flat which was used for the, where the drugs were held, that kind of thing, and a rival drug gang had found out, and they'd broken in, and she was a child. She hid in a wardrobe, and they were, had. She could see that they had guns with them as well. And she did. She was fine. You know, she escaped from there. But she was actually later arrested because the police instead found the drugs. So she was, you know, hit with criminal conviction then. Um, and so that was 11 years ago. And she is. This, well, it's actually. We need so many more horrible things, but there's. Um, many, many um, abusive relationships because she kind of fell into this pattern of staying with drug dealers, drug users, and a lot of them were abusive. Um, and she's had three children now, and all three of them have been taken away. Um, and that has made her just decline further and relapse so many times. Um, she has twice been on a methadone prescription. Um, but again, like another thing you said about men being, you know, predominantly service users. So, like for every one woman, there is three men in services, and so she encountered one ex-partner uh, who was really violent towards her. So she ended up in a refuge. Encountered him at a drug service um, um, place, and then since the article was published, I've spoken to her, and twice she's encountered. Well, we encountered him once more and another person again. And my article was published. That one in particular was published like two weeks ago. <laughs> and that's three times. And unfortunately, it's, you know, I, I don't see any end in sight to the story at the moment because it's just, there's no support. You know, when the children were taken away, it was, the children were taken because she's a mother. But her as a person was just left. There was no support there. You know, her family have really stood by her through all of this, and there was still no, you know, no proper support. And the whole, even dealing with those 
issues at the very first, like what sparked this whole you know, decline of a person has never been tackled. And that's why I just really struggle to see the end because you know, it's still, you know, punishment is what women tend to get in this kind of situation rather than support. Like, and you spoke to Ian Hamilton, who's a, a friend of ours. Um, he, again, he, he's, I think he was the one that brought this out in the University of York, the, um, the, the death figures. Um, what, what was his point of view? Why, why does he think that we've got a rise and, and how do we combat this? I don't know if I can answer exactly how you'd combat it, but he, he said um, that the rise is, well, he thinks it's mainly due to an absence of support. And he also is quite critical of the government for using the same old line of an ageing, you know, cohort of drug users because they are more susceptible to deaths, which they are. There are more deaths among older people, but there are still deaths among young people. And, you know, those people are going to end up being the older people eventually who will, you know, be that person. Um, I mean, he... I don't think I've really, like I said, found an answer. But then there are... You know, Agenda is another charity who are really keen for gender-specific services, which I think would definitely go some way towards helping, you know, that. And, again, um, Anyone's Child as well was another one who I included in the article. Um, they said gender-specific services are really important, but the problem is, as the government spends so much more money enforcing drug laws, and the cuts, you know, 16%, I think it was, across England in drug services in four years... That money is not being it's being ploughed into enforcement, you know, enforcing the drug laws, as opposed to dealing with the problems that start the drug use in the first place and how people come to a subjection, basically. I'm going to come back to Emily in a bit. Can we have a round of applause for those? I kind of dropped it on Emily that we was going to come over to her, so thank you so much for doing that. And that, that is the line we get from the Home Office, isn't it? There's an ageing cohort that's now being... ageing is 40 to 45, and as someone who's in her 40s, I'm offended. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, that's what they mean by an ageing population. That's it. That people in their 40s are dying, and it's because they're old. That's just offensive. I, I don't understand how that's a, a line either. It's, if there's death of any cohort, then surely that's something that we need to address. It's not so like... Said we all died <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Um, but that it is, I think it's those stories, those, those real tangible, hitting stories that, that are going to sell this issue to reform. And, and this is something that you said, Laurie, in the past, that you've, you've almost taken a step back now of... of uh, reactive journalism. You like to sit back, contemplate, and put stuff out there that's more considered, more reasoned, and more humanistic. Do you think that is the best way that we can deal with this in, in this movement? Um, not necessarily, actually. I think obviously there's a place for long-form storytelling. This, that always makes an impact. Um, but the fight to keep this agenda in the news is also really, really important. Um, when it's um, when it's a case of just changing the tide of the debate, it's as important to have a volume of stories and a volume of people working on it. It's quantity as much as quality, I think, in this stuff. Although, obviously, incredibly hard-hitting, long-form stories that are irreplaceable in terms of changing the narrative, it's also about how much it's kept on the agenda. 
It's interesting listening to Emily's story that she reported in Vice and the story that you used in the Channel 4 film of Veronica. It's two different sides of the coin, isn't it? You've got the mother and the daughter both having seen drug addiction from their their perspectives. Um, What was it like dealing with Veronica? Because I think she's got a book out as well, hasn't she? Yeah, she has. Hidden Harm, it's called. Um, Well, we did a... The problem we have in TV is... um, that I suspect you probably don't have in print. Um, I don't know if yours was a video. Okay, print, yeah. Um, is that uh, people often don't want to be in vision. So we spoke um, with a lady called Trudy as well, who was anonymous. Um, and uh, her story was really powerful, but it's, it's quite hard to kind of tell people's story and uh, let it have the impact that it deserves when you can't actually you know, see the person. So that's an issue that we have um, in news, and that's why we kind of spoke with two different sides um, to try and, uh, I guess, show how, you know, drug laws, drug deaths affect sort of different people. Um, I've forgotten what your question was. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, we're going to take a, a quick sort of not intermission, but we're going to um, say goodbye to Laurie in a minute. So is there anybody that's got a specific question for Laurie or if you want a book signed to get that in quick? Or are we okay? Anybody got a hand up there? No, Laurie, why does no one want to ask you a, ask no, you a question? Ask you Jeez, yeah, go on Twitter and ask that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. You need to stoke it up a bit. That's what it is. <laughs> so if you could give a massive round of applause. Cause Thank lo- you very much. To Laurie Penny. And then I think we're going to take, we're going to do about another 10 minutes, if that's all right with you guys. Um, so, um, where did we get to? All right, so basically we're going to need to work out now of what do we do from this point? How do we actually start solving the riddle of some of these drug deaths? Um, is, is there a solution? Is there an answer? We, we keep revisiting the issue of frontline services. Um, is, th- is that the, the point where we need to, to get to? You keep asking big questions. Um, so... I think what Laurie just said about the media is really important, really important, because I think the majority of these deaths, especially the heroin and morphine-related deaths, if you look at the profile of people who are dying, the reason the government doesn't care is because of who's dying. These are people who have said repeatedly, live in poverty, have no social political capital, aren't probably going to vote, might do, but they don't care. So when the media, BBC and Channel 4 News, which have spent a l- started to pay a lot of attention to this in the last month, are highlighting it, it matters. It's giving voice to the issue. The answer? God, drug treatment services have been decimated in this country through funding. They've been decimated through ideology, where, as I've said, the recovery agenda is the dominant agenda, where good treatment is defined by people exiting from treatment based on the drug that they present it with, not even being drug-free, which is not important, actually. But, for example, if you're a heroin user, if you enter treatment and you get off heroin but you're using alcohol, that's okay. That's successful, isn't it, in some treatment services? And, actually, alcohol's really, really, really bad for you if you've got hepatitis C. Really bad for you. You'd be way better on the, the, the heroin. 
way better. Um, it may kill you quite quickly. So you mean there's this really screwed up treatment system that's not looking at the, the primary needs of the individual and those primary needs is to keep them safe, to keep them well and to improve their lives and to help them get to a place where they feel that they're stable. And that's defined by the individual and not by some bullshit ideology around abstinence. So I think that's really, really fundamentally important and we have lost that so much in drug treatment over the last seven years. The big one, you have to stop criminalizing people who use drugs. Stop treating them as criminals just because they put a substance, and most of those substances come from plants, in their body. That is ridiculous. That is not the um, role of the state. And, and when the state talks about the morality of drugs, the morality of drug use, I would question the morality of criminalizing some of the most vulnerable and disadvantaged in society. And thank you, Andrea. Um, and also, too, I would question why they do this. Because you know why? Because othering works really, really well. And this is a group who are othered in society. So if your estate is shitty and your estate has lots of crime on it and there's visible... That, that's, that's not our fault as government. You know what? It's not you know, because of Thatcher's policies or whatever. That's because of the people in your estate. It's the drug users. It's the migrants who are taking away your jobs. It's all, you know... That suits government agenda, and you have to start calling it out, because this isn't really about drugs, as I keep saying. It's about structural poverty. It's about structural racism. It's about the failure of the state to actually do its job, to do its job and to do it properly. And its first job is to protect the lives of its citizens, and then its second job is to improve those bloody lives. And that's where we need to push the debate. So we should stop talking about drugs a bit. That would be my answer. It's so true. Even though we're a drugs podcast, we shouldn't talk about the drugs. It is the people. And, and that's certainly something, again, Emily, your, your story with, with Anne in, in Vice, and again, I totally recommend people look that up. But um, we mentioned decriminalisation, as, as you just said as well. Jane Slater from Transform is quoted in your article. She says about decriminalisation, doesn't she? Um, can you explain the point that she was making? Well, I think I kind of touched on it earlier, which was about the money... That, it's, um, that it consumes basically um, for you know, the government and for law enforcement to action you know, this, the drug laws. And that money could be better spent on services that support people instead rather than you know, you know, enforcing it. Do you think there's a, a stigmatisation that inherently goes with criminalisation as well, that all the while we're under that banner, we just can't think of it in terms of anything else than a criminal issue? Yes, definitely. I mean, addiction is is an illness, and I mean, I don't know. Disease sounds a bit extreme. I don't know what you think, me. But I mean, it does take hold of somebody in the same way as illness does, and so you do have the stigmatisation. And you know, once you've got that, it's very hard to lose that, I guess. And it also means that people find it hard to recover because it's accessing support outside of this very small world that you're in when you're in the drug world, I guess. And this is another thing that Anne said to me was, um, you know, one of her comments was like, you're in such a world. And it is a world in itself. And once you've got that stigma attached to you that you are a drug user and a criminal, you know, a lot of people won't want to spend time with you and they don't feel that they, you know, not everyone, this is a generalisation, but they find it hard to support um, people who are using drugs as they believe they are criminals as opposed to somebody who um, needs support and... You know, just helping to, you know, recover. And you, you covered for the independent the fact that Scotland 
are facing an even worse drug de uh, death rate. Uh, I think it's 216% that it's gone up by. What's happening there? Um, I, don't, I can't tell you what's happening there, but um, again, the response from the government um, was the ageing users. But I have to say, Scotland, um, Aileen Campbell did come back and said that she has commissioned work, I don't know exactly what this work is, to look into why more women are dying and you know how this can be tackled but i mean this is you know a very small line and what this actually means in practice i don't know yet um so i guess that's a small recognition of what is happening here but you know 216% you know increase in women's drug tests 77% men that problem needs to be looked at and tackled quickly it's you know it's not okay just to leave it and ignore it so there is a small recognition similarly in the government strategy in 2017 the July one that came out the government did mention <laughs> acknowledge that women have problems but I mean agenda has you know they were quite were pleased I guess and they welcomed it but the line was something like they are going to use innovative approaches to look at perpetrators and victims to essentially reduce the crimes and the misuse of drugs but again there's no explanation of what it needs it was a very small section in the strategy and i mean if if i was in that position as a woman who's struggling i'd find that quite insulting it's 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 almost as obnoxious as strong and steady <laughs> it really is so Thank you so much again, Emily, for that. Because we did drop it on you somewhat today, so thank you so much for that. Right, you lot, there's got to be a question. I'm not going to have an event without there not being a single question. Most times, all the hands going, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to totally... Oh, we got one from Tyler at the back. Thank you, friends, for rescuing me. I'm going to just ignore you as I walk by Nigel because you've let me down. Tyler, thank you so much. No problem. Um, hi, Neem. So, um, with cannabis not linked to any deaths... Do you see it as separate from the rest of the drug legalisation debate? So, because cannabis isn't any resp responsible for any... Any deaths, deaths basically, yeah. Should it's it not be? dangerous in the same way as other drugs. So should it be a separate argument or... No, you, you mean, I think we should legalise all drugs. That should be the ultimate goal. Um, you mean, the first, our organisation firstly starts with decriminalisation, which I know lots of the cannabis legalisation movement aren't fond of. But the reason that we do that is very pragmatic, is that we work with people who use all drugs. And so we want a policy that benefits all of them first. And then we start to look at cannabis legalization. So are you saying that in terms like the drug-related deaths could be used as an argument for cannabis legalization? Yeah, um, basically. So yeah. that is actually interesting because there's a lot of research coming out of the US, which you all probably know has a, a huge opioid um, crisis um, with very high rates of drug-related deaths far exceeding ours. And there's some research from the states that have regulated cannabis, both for recre recreational purposes and for medicinal purposes, that there's lower rates of deaths in those states. It's an interesting argument, and I think that's a good reason why we should move, one good reason why we should move to cannabis regulation, but I, I, I get concerned when we start to pit drugs against each other. I, I don't think that's helpful. I think we should be working all together, all drug users, and saying, policies failed, let's look at solutions. So that's my answer to it. And I, I think that there's a good point there, <coughs> excuse me, a good point there, that um, we are strangely almost angled to reform 
the way that we do heroin over cannabis first, aren't we, with drug consumption rules, heroin-assisted treatment. Do you reckon the public are getting that message better than they are with, with um, broader drug policy reform and, and cannabis? Um, I don't think the public have been very involved in those messages. I think those have been taken by very strong harm reduction advocacy groups in, for example, Glasgow, who have pushed very hard. I think it's a response to crisis. I think we see a lot of drug policy reform when crisis occurs. And in Glasgow, we had a spike in HIV transmission rates amongst people who inject drugs. I think that crisis is why we're seeing drug consumption room being rolled out there. Heroin-assisted treatment, again, in Glasgow, it's a similar issue. rest of the country, we're not seeing the same response. What we are seeing, though, is localism, ironically, work for us. So localism has destroyed us in terms of funding, but at the same time, it's given autonomy to decision-makers at local levels, such as police and crime commissioners, to be innovative. So we're seeing in North Wales, for example, the police and crime commissioner there pushing for a drug consumption room. We're seeing in, the, in Durham, the uh, police and crime commissioner and the chief constable there pushing for heroin-assisted treatment. So these innovations are coming from local um, decision-makers, policy-makers, rather than national government. That's what localism was about. It was about national government abrogating its duty and its responsibility by pushing stuff to the local area um, and not giving them enough money to do it. But at the same time, what it's done is created innovation. I think the media have played its role in that as well, in that you have... I'm not honestly just on about you, Anya, but you have oh, covered... <laughs> You've covered the, the, the heroin issue and heroin-assisted treatment really balanced over the last few months as a broad media term. Um, we're, we're starting to really focus in on, on the human cost. Um, and this is something that I raised with you earlier, is just how your films are really balanced. You've managed to get the human stories across. Is that the way that, giving us tips, is that the way that we need to approach things, is to start thinking about how we can attach the human interest to this story? Well, I think like any story is better told through people that have lived it rather than people that have worked in it. Um, so, yeah, so if there's ever anybody with a good story, then that's the best way for us to tell that story. And every story is different, so we might be covering the same kind of issue, but it gives us a new way to kind of explore these topics. Um, but I think going back to what you were saying earlier about um, cannabis not causing deaths, I think in a way... Um, you know, in, in the piece that I did looking at drug testing at festivals, the reason that they were able to get that done is because they were looking at it from a, a harm point of view rather than a prosecution point of view. And I think um, with um, places where people can take heroin in a sort of safe environment, I think, you know, for those that don't agree with drug taking, they can't argue against saving lives and, and helping people. And therefore, that's why that's been pushed more maybe than legalization of cannabis because that doesn't kill people and so those that are against drugs altogether won't go for the argument that you know cannabis is you know relatively safe but you know when you're actually saving people's lives people can't really argue against that i'm going to start to wrap up now um so have we got any more questions i've not forgotten that don't worry um nigel's ignoring me completely now See, I, I'm, I've had you down as a future guest and you've not opened your mouth yeah. once. No, that's it. Blacklist now. So thank you so much and give it up, first of all, for Emily Goddard down here. <laughs> and your pop.
and of course, Neve Eastwood. Thank you so much for coming and make sure you get back safe. Thank you so much. Bye. It's times like that that you realise that the work we do is so important. And also the, the part that you play in listening and sharing, it really does help. So if you could share this episode around, if you could recommend our podcast to some people that might not necessarily be involved in the conversation, it just you know, it pushes us out to realms that we don't normally get to. So thank you for the part you play in this. Um, if you can get to live events, please do. Say hello. I'm, I'm always really grateful to meet uh, listeners so thank you so much for all you doing that and one to one thank yous i need to thank tristan our producer who produced that one on the night because um nicky broke his leg so normally nicky's at the desk but on that particular occasion he was in laid up in hospital having a, a bandage put on or whatever you do with a broken leg from playing football so thank you tristan and nicky for all you do on this thank you so much to my name is that for all the artwork you've done us amazing Thank you, John, our Distraction Pieces Network social media guy. Please please listen to the Dream Factory podcast because John is, is fantastic. Also listen to, not listen, but a, a like our Facebook page at UKLeap.org. And if you can follow us on Twitter at UKLeap and Instagram at UKLeap. And if you just want to look at our website, just have a look at UKLeap.org. And as you can tell, I still do that off the top of my head and I still stumble. But um, one day I'll get there. I might actually be a professional one day. Yeah, might actually sound like it anyway. And I think that's it. So if you can always keep up to date with what we're doing, there's going to be more live events, there's going to be more guests, and I'm hoping to to kind of put out more frequency as well. I'm hoping to do more than one a month fairly soon because we've got quite a few in the bank now that we've recorded. So, yeah, I'd like to do more. So keep your fingers crossed. We might get there. On that note, don't forget to stay safe out there, and thank you so much for listening. I'll see you again soon. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.